What do you think of when you hear the word clean? Is it something freshly washed? Perhaps something recently disinfected? It's possible I'm thinking of only having kids. Perhaps it's something that's well organized and everything is put away. What do you think of when you think of the word clean? What do you think of when you heard of the word unclean? Does it conjure up ideas of things that are dirty or maybe things that are diseased or even disorganized and messy? What do these words do to us? What do they bring to our minds? To us, these words typically point to something referring to a cleanliness. But to a first century Jew, these words would have unmistakably described people. If your mother was Jewish, and even more so if both of your parents were Jewish, if your mother was Jewish, you would have been considered clean. Unless, of course, you did something to deem yourself unclean. You can certainly read more about that in Leviticus chapters 11 through 15. There's a whole litany of things that would render you unclean. Maybe you touch a dead body. Maybe you... There's all sorts of examples, and I don't want to use out loud. Trying to avoid those. There's a whole list of them in Leviticus, things that would render you unclean. But even if you were, a couple of days and a sacrifice later, you could be rendered clean again. That's how the Bible describes it in the Old Testament. But if, for example, your mother is not Jewish, then you were not only deemed unclean, then there was virtually no path for you to become clean. You literally had no place in Judaism, and therefore, no place with God. Now, there was a path for a God-fearer to worship God, but not to be a Jew. You were still held on the outside. And the Jewish people would have still discriminated against you. For you were not the chosen people. God had a chosen people, and you weren't it. Now, it's possible that your mom is Jewish, but I'm guessing she wasn't. Mine wasn't. But either way, we need to consider what in the world this has to do with us. Because, I mean, if we just come this morning so that Pastor Ben could call me unclean because my mom isn't Jewish? The answer to that is no. But we do need to dig in on what does the Bible say about clean and unclean? And what does that say to us now? Because this morning, as we dig into Acts chapter 10, God is going to bring this issue of clean and unclean to the forefront. And He's going to settle it for us in a way that we need to be exposed to. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continuously to God. All of a sudden, Luke, who's writing this letter 
is writing this book to this Theophilus to explain the faith, shares about the disciples and shares about Saul. And then we take a, a weird turn here and we end up talking about a guy named Cornelius. A guy who's really, really different than anyone we've seen yet in Acts. And yet Luke tells us some things about him. Cornelius is a Roman soldier. He's a centurion, meaning he was in charge of a hundred men in a cohort of six hundred men. Who, according to the text, tells us more things about Cornelius, that he's a pretty good guy. Based on the fact that he fears God, he prays, he gives generously. Which makes me want to point two things out to you. Both culturally relevant. The first of which, if you were a first century Jewish person, you would have been struck at his name. And then you would have been struck at his job. Why? Because this guy is a Roman. And therefore... He is categorically unclean. It doesn't matter what he does. It doesn't matter who he helps. It doesn't matter how or what he does or what impact he has with our God. He's on the outside. A first century Jew, that would have been the first thing that would have struck them about this Cornelius character who now stands out in the Scripture. This is an outsider. He is unclean. But we're not in the first century. And most of us, if not all of us, are not remotely Jewish. Which brings us to our second point, which is entirely different and similar at the same time. For if you are a 21st century American and you read this, you will see it extraordinarily different. For example, a 21st century American would read this and think, about this Cornelius. He's a devout man. That's a good thing. He fears God with all of his household. Clearly, he's leading his family well. He's a soldier, which means he's a nationalist, which means he's supporting the cause of his government. Why can't we get all behind this guy? He gives away all his money to poor people and he prays all the time. This is a good man. This is a great man. And in fact, we'd be dangerously close to suggesting that this man doesn't need God because of all of his accolades. Because according to every stereotype we can put together, this is a good person. We'll touch on that more as we move through this modern perspective of a good person. But for a moment, let's put that away and think of it from the Jewish perspective Because that's how the Bible is written. That's what it's supposed to, that's how we're supposed to look at it this way. And Peter's going to help us out quite a bit. Before we get to Peter, we'll get here in verse nine. I'm going to summarize sections of this. We're going through a chapter and a half. It'll take a while to read through it all. But in verses three through eight, God calls Cornelius and tells him to send for Peter, who's staying with Simon the Tanner. Tells him to send out a group of guys to go. And so in verse nine, we get to Peter finally. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, this is referring to the group sent out by Cornelius, Peter went up onto the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. 
But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. That is, he saw a vision. And saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. You could see the vision. He's a hungry man. God unfurls this sheet with every kind of living creature on it. It's not surprising. What becomes surprising is verse 13. And then there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Verse 15, And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So Peter receives a vision. And if you follow verse 16, three times God says, it's okay if you eat it. I made it. It's fine for you. And three times Peter denies bacon. It's unfathomable. Now I want you to take a hold of this. Because what's happening here is important and instructive to us. Because God is specifically calling Peter to do something. God's giving him an imperative. I want you to do this. And yet on the other hand, what God is putting before Peter challenges all the societal norms that he has. It challenges his comfortability. It challenges his understanding of how people operate. This is not how we do it. God says, I want you to do this. Peter says, we've never done it that way. And God says, Peter, I have this for you. Peter says, but this isn't our tradition. Friends, we need to see this. Because Peter has a greater desire in this text at this point to do what has always been done rather than to choose obedience to God. He wants to obey tradition. To do what's comfortable. To do what he's always done. And yet God is putting something new before him. The text continues, verse 17. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Friends, what God does here is He gives Peter a vision and then brings great clarity and application to his vision. Now this is an important passage beyond just that we can eat bacon. I'll refer to that several more times. It's an important New Testament reality. Pork ribs, pork shoulder, shrimp, lobster, crab. There's a litany here, but that's not the point of the text. Because God had something far greater for Peter and greater for us 
than bacon. And in verse 21 through 24, he goes to Cornelius. Verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many people had gathered. Cornelius had brought in quite a crowd to meet with Peter. And listen to what Peter says. Verse 28. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Let's pause there for a second. Because this is not great hospitality. When invited into somebody's house, you don't typically start with, Hey, you know... It's illegal for me to, for my kind of people to be with your kind of people. Because my kind of people think this is bad. My kind of people think this is unclean. My kind of people think this experience not only is unclean, but it's going to render me unclean, making me unacceptable back to my own people. What Peter does here is extraordinary because he begins to follow out what God has for him. Even to the extent of societal criticism. Now, if we lean into chapter 11, we should note he takes six guys with him. Not a bad move if you're going to do something controversial. Take a lot of accountability, partners. But Peter continues on his speech. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Let me say that again. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So, verse 29, when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Friends, it's not about what we've always done or our tradition. It's not about how we were raised. It's not about things we've seen on TV or things we've experienced. Everything that had put Peter together in this moment, everything his parents had instilled in him, his grandparents had instilled in him, his high school friends had pointed him to, his college buddies had instructed him on, everything they'd held themselves to, God says, do it differently. There's no unclean. And Peter goes. Without objection, he goes. Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This is not a good concept for us, clean or unclean. But friends, God says there's no unclean. So we have to lean into that. We have to now figure out what does that mean for us. And we'll get to that. Peter goes on to say in verse 34, Peter opens his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Two notes. One, this word nation, if you're looking at the Bible or the screen, there's a word that shows up through this passage that rocked my world a couple years ago. For this world, nation is in Greek the word ethnos. Ethnicity comes from this word. It's a people group. 
The same word that's translated as nation will later be translated as Gentiles or the world. That there's actually one word used in our New Testament English that shows up in multiple places, whether it's nation, the world, or Gentiles. The idea is these unbelievers, these outsiders who are not like us, You should start to see the thrust of the New Testament pushing you outside of your comfort zone. For we are all in our own skin, tempted to like, to love, and to want to spend all of our time with people who are exactly like us. And the gospel says no. It's bigger than that. Show no impartiality. Every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Second note, this does not mean that everyone is saved. This verse gets taken radically out of context, so we're going to put it in context. For if it meant that, that takes us back to the good person argument. Cornelius doesn't need Jesus, and yet here God thinks he does. What this passage means is that God doesn't discriminate. God doesn't have a list of special people and unspecial people. Clean people I really like and love and unclean people. The people I want to throw my arms around and the people who need to take a shower before I'm around them. God shows no partiality. He's willing to dwell literally with anyone. There's a lot to say about the fact that we're his image bearers. There's a lot to say about the fact that he's willing to dwell with anyone and we're his image bearers and he wants to take his image out. Who do you think he wants to use to take his image out? That would be us. We are his image bearers. Even to the point of criticism. We'll get there. God pursues all people and makes salvation available to all people, the clean and the unclean. In fact, God does a work here through the work of the Holy Spirit to undo these definitions so that Peter wouldn't see a man so different than him, but that Peter would see a man exactly like him, a man who also needs Jesus. So Peter points Cornelius and the others to Jesus. Verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, that's talking about God, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one anointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness 
that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now watch that message that God gives Peter to speak to Cornelius, the really good person. God doesn't say, hey, you've done enough. Your good deeds are outweighing your bad deeds. I've seen the scale. It's in your favor. No, God says by the Holy Spirit, written down by Luke, by the mouth of Peter, that God is the judge of the living and the dead. And that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of His sins through His name. There's not another name. There's not another way to seek forgiveness. There's not a good person. Verse 44. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Let's pause there for a second. Because what we don't see in this passage is something extraordinary. What we see in this passage is probably how most of us came to faith. There's no tongues of fire. There's no loud winds that sound like rushing trains. You see the Holy Spirit falling on people. Why? Because they believed. Because they believed in Jesus. They came to understand salvation in Jesus. And just as we've walked through the book of Acts, we've pointed it out to you time and time again. When you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. That's what happens here. Verse 45, And the believers from among the circumcised, the New Testament will continue to use that term to describe those who are discriminatory, those who think they are more righteous than others, those that think that people need to clean themselves up before they can come in. The believers from among the circumcised who'd come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was pouring out even on the Gentiles, even on the ethnos, on the people. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for a number of days. Friends, you'd think this issue was settled in Acts 10. God spoke it. Peter obeyed. Was it settled? Clearly not. Because Luke recounts this entire story in Acts 11. Because when Peter returns to Jerusalem, he becomes greatly criticized by a group of people who firmly believe you have to look like us, act like us, before you can know Jesus. And so Peter and Paul stand in front of the believers and confront them on it. You think that might solve it. It doesn't. It shows up again in Acts 15, this time being resolved at the Jerusalem Council, where again people argue that you must first be clean before coming to Jesus. Peter helps resolve that argument in Acts 15 by saying this, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
effectively, regardless of your stature, regardless from where you came from, when you believed in Jesus, you were not clean. That's true of all of us. It's true of Peter. Why are we putting a yoke on these people, expecting them to get their lives together before they come to Christ? Wasn't true of us. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Now you'd think this might resolve it, but clearly it doesn't. Later we'll find Paul confronting Peter saying, Brother, when you, you gotta treat the Gentiles better than you are. You act differently when the Jewish people are around. It doesn't resolve it. Which seems to suggest a huge tension even in the early church that I'd put before you still exists. That we all live with a strong temptation to like people who are exactly like us and to push people away who are not. That we all think we deserve Jesus and they don't. We deserve salvation. They don't. People who are like me need Jesus. People who are not like me don't. Friends, there is no unclean. There is no one who cannot come to Christ. There is no one who must clean themselves up before they come to Christ. You don't have to get it right. You don't have to be clean. You don't have to be sober. You don't have to have your life together before Jesus will accept you, before Jesus will save you. You cannot clean a fish before you catch it. And don't miss this. No one has ever had their act together enough for us to pursue them with the gospel. No one has to have their act together enough for us to pursue them with the gospel. There's nobody in your life so broken, so messed up, so gone, so lost, so far, so out there. It doesn't matter what sin they're entangled in, what sin that has snared them. There is literally no one so gone. That's part of the reason for the example of Saul. There's no one so gone. And yet Saul challenges our sensibilities because if you were a first century Jew, he would be like you. You would just think he was a good guy that made a bad decision. And this pushes us far beyond that. Far, far beyond that. Everyone needs Jesus. We've been teaching through the book of Acts since Easter. Let me give you some cliff notes. Because there's some broad strokes that have been painted before you. And I want to make it clear for us this morning. The first one you see is that everyone who believes receives the Holy Spirit and receives power. I love repeating that to you over and over again. This is the biggest theme in the book of Acts in the early part. Why? Because the disciples weren't an elite group of believers. They were just like you and just like me. You don't have to be special. You don't have to have a pedigree. When Lenny asks for people to come and join in the Good News Club, you don't have to have all the answers figured out. 
It's hanging out with a third grader. Will they ask you a question you don't know the answer to? Of course they will. I got asked a question I didn't know the answer to. Of course, it was about space and other stuff, but still. Friends, you don't have to be a special kind of believer to obey. Obedience is for all of us. That's the first huge stroke in Acts. Belief is for all of us. That we believe, we receive the Holy Spirit, and then we're His witnesses. And the second movement comes from people living out this reality. Several years ago, we walked through Hebrews 11. The thrust of that whole section was that faith is living like what you believe God said is true. That if we look at God's truth and we act like it's true, that's faith. It's not just this pocket thing I keep that, oh, God has saved me. I've done enough. Let's put it away. I've got my insurance. Believing is not an acquisition. But believing is seeing that I have something so precious, so extraordinary, that I start to notice that what I have is exactly what the world is longing for in such a way that I tell them. So that when you sit and talk to somebody and they talk about the challenges of their marriage, you relate to them. Because we all have challenges in our marriage. We all require Jesus Christ and His redemption and His grace to love our spouse. If you don't say amen, you're lying. Say amen. There you go. Good work. We all require Jesus Christ to be parents. Whether your kids are 48 or 8 or 4. Especially if you're 4. Or 2 or 3 weeks. God has given us something so precious and so extraordinary that He gives us a peace that can transcend everything such that we can sing even on the darkest of days, it is well with my soul. Why? Because regardless of the tempest God should call you through, how dark the night gets, how high the waves roll... We're still saved. We still know Him. We still have the most precious thing we'll ever have. And people need to see it. They need to know it. And we need to tell them. It's this second big stroke that you see in Acts that caused the church to grow. In fact, the church explodes. Why? Because it moves beyond the original twelve beyond the original 70, beyond the original 300. You'll remember the last time we carnated in math, we were in well into the 10,000s. That was just in Jerusalem. That's before the gospel went into Samaria. That's before we, we met an Ethiopian who took the gospel to Africa. Now we're meeting a Roman who will take the gospel back into Rome. It's normal people telling normal people about a great hope they have. And the third big movement we see in Acts is to push back on our self-righteousness. To push back on our judgmentalism as if we did something to earn God's favor. As if somehow God owes us something. 
or somehow we're in some special club that Jesus only lets a certain special people in that we're a part of. This third movement pushes back our self-righteousness. That's why we see the story of Saul, who the original audience would have known that he is like me. He grew up with me. He does stuff the way I do it. He just got into some bad stuff. But this guy still needs Jesus. And the Gospel keeps pushing. But what about those who I didn't grow up with? What about those who don't look like me? Maybe their skin is a little different color or maybe they speak differently than I do. Don't they need to become more like me to know Jesus? Don't they need to be more like me to fit into my church? Don't they need to be more like me to know God? Shouldn't they clean themselves up? Friends, the answer is not a better morality. And it's not a better social awareness. The answer is Jesus Christ for everyone. For the ethnos. For all people groups. Everywhere. Just as it was true in August when I was in Papua New Guinea, standing amongst tribal people, preaching Christ to tribal people. What they needed was Jesus. Now in America, we've got different problems. It looks radically different here. But the answer is the same. It's Christ. The message of the book of Acts is that you are His messengers. And that you are His messengers to the good and the moral people. And you're His messengers to the messy, to the dirty, to those you might consider unclean. That you're His messengers to those who would try to harm you. That you're His messengers even to those whose lives do not match yours, who do not look like you, act like you, or think like you. For in Jesus Christ, there is no unclean. And the Gospel has a plan to send you to all of them. That's not you plural. That'd be a y'all. That's you individually. God puts messy people in your lives on purpose so that you will speak of the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ and offer hope to people, regardless of whether you think they deserve it. Let me pray for us. Fathers, we've walked through this book of Acts. You have made it plain to us that when people believe they receive the Holy Spirit, when they receive the Holy Spirit, they receive power. And that power exists that we would be your witnesses, that we would testify to who you are. Father, even in our church this morning, looking around, there are messy people amongst us whose lives are filled with struggle, just like mine. Father, none of us is right. None of us is perfect. None of us is dotting all of our I's and crossing all of our T's. The Gospel declares that there is not one right, not even one. So Father, we gather to worship the One who would save us who would forgive us of our sins, who would redeem us so that we could be an heir to the one true King, so we could be a child of God.
Father, just as you extended that grace to us in our messiness, Father, you've called us to extend that grace to others regardless of their messiness. Father, where there are places that we see clean and unclean, would you tear that apart? Father, where there are places where we discriminate, Father, will you tear that apart? Father, where there are places where we think we're right and others are wrong, where we walk with self-righteousness, Father, will you show that to us and tear it apart? Father, would you use us as your messengers to the hurt, to the broken, to the needy, to the messy, just like us. In your name we pray. Amen.